Hi everyone, and welcome to my sauntering podcast. My name is Paul White, and I live in a gorgeous place called Weymouth. And this podcast is a collection of saunters that were born in lockdown, but it's also got some additional stuff which is just fresh, hot off the press. praying that you'll be really blessed and that God will speak into your heart as we take this journey together. So please go ahead and hit the subscribe button to keep updated with the very latest sauntering podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of my Sauntering Podcast. I'm really excited today to have a very special guest on and we are going to talk about the subject of the virgin birth. Particularly relevant as we're coming up to Christmas and my guest is none other than Josh White who is a dear friend of mine, (laughs) a very (laughs) special relationship and uh, I've known him a long time, in fact his whole life. And he's he's currently studying theology at Moreland's Bible College and is in his third year of a degree and is absolutely loving it and doing extraordinarily well. So, Josh, welcome to my podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Yes, lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. So cool. So we're going to just talk about some things. And the virgin birth is a massive issue for the Christian church. It seems to be very central to the theological position of most mainstream Christian denominations, I believe, and it's part of this, um, you know, the kind of statement of faith of many churches. And Mm -hmm. why would you say it's so important, Josh, that this idea that Jesus was born and his mum was a virgin? Yeah, I mean, it is such a massive topic, isn't it? And I think there's there's so much, as is the case with everything in the Bible, there's so much going on. I think there are a couple of things that jump out in terms of um, what it says about who Jesus is. So the first one is that he is God, you know, um, the fact that he was conceived of through the Holy Spirit and not by a human father, Um there's that kind of supernatural element, element, um, <clears throat> the the divine aspect. But then also we have this being born of a woman, you know, into a smelly stable <clears throat> surrounded by um, cattle, where there's this very human aspect of it. And the when we read, um, especially in the epistles, about how um, the this so Jesus was sinless, and the, this idea that Jesus's sacrifice when he died on the cross was um, only possible through his sinless nature. Um, but then Paul tells us that through the sin of Adam and Eve um, in Genesis, that all humanity is under sin. So there's this idea that anyone born through a human by human parents is inherently sinful. Um, hence the massive need for Jesus to come but then 
So we've got that element. So Jesus is so, sinless. Let me stop you there um, a second. So Jesus' humanity is as important as his divinity. Is that what you're saying? So the fact that he's fully human is as relevant as the fact that he's, or equally relevant to the fact that he's fully God. Yeah. So there's this kind of idea of a fulfillment of the um, the covenant made with, with Adam and Eve, the command God gave them um, that they failed to do and then the patriarchs failed to do. There's this idea that Jesus is the, the supreme example, the, the one that would be the perfect righteous person um, in order to kind of undo the effects of sin. Um, yeah, it's something theological theologians like to call the hypostatic union, this idea that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And there's much debate over the extent to which God was, Jesus was God in one, you know, particular time. Did he have omniscience, you know, when he was in this position? Just help us with some of these terms, Josh. So we've got hypostatic union. Was that? Yeah. So that's Jesus's divinity and his humanity, how they kind of coexist. And then the um, other one was omniscience, which means just for the uninitiated. That, that's it is his all being all knowing. So, yeah. you know, a couple of times in the Gospels, he seems to not know something and you kind of think, does he actually not know it? Is that his human aspect? Right. Um, so that's a kind of hot debate amongst people who have too much time on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Bible college students as well, no doubt. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's this idea that both of the elements are necessary for Jesus's plan of redemption to actually have any weight to it. You know, if he wasn't, if he had sinned, then he wouldn't be the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice. Um, but if he um, wasn't human, he wouldn't. Um, I guess he wouldn't be an appropriate sacrifice to to kind of cover the misdemeanors of fellow humans is that right it would be kind of like an incompatibility issue would that be right yeah yeah and to be to kind of bear the sins in the way that he did go on no i'm just trying to think actually that's (laughs) yeah it's interesting so the fact that his that god is his father and no human being is his father and a human being is his mother does that mean that there's a sense that somehow the sinful nature came through the father into the child or how how are we thinking about that yeah it's an interesting one isn't it isn't it this this idea of like the age of accountability like can you call a newborn baby sinful i don't think so but then it's like at what age is it where's the cutoff um but yeah there's certainly in um all especially in romans 5 talks about um how the sin of adam had an effect on all of us but he often uses adam as shorthand for adam and eve you know he's not placing all the blame on adam and yeah getting away with it um but yeah it's what makes the gospel so important to everyone is that we're all sinful we've all fallen short um of the glory of god and you know it's that fact that makes it so kind of important that we as christians are 
telling anyone who will listen, <laughs> even if they don't listen. Um, because, yeah, we... Go on. So, no, I was going to say, so, so to make the Virgin Birth Central, it, it, it ha- absolutely has to be there to give us um, Jesus, who is fully God, fully human. Would you say that's mm. probably it in a nutshell? Yeah, and then we've got the other element of it's Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we read in um, Isaiah 7 14, it's the famous um, prophecy that um, virgin will, can, will bear a son, his name will be called Emmanuel. Matthew quotes it in um, Matthew 1 18. Um, no, 20, Matthew 1 22. Um, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, and if, when you read through the New Testament, there's this real kind of dominant narrative of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Yes. Um, we read in like 1 Corinthians 15, which is argued as the earliest kind of creedal statement of the gospel. Um, scholars date it to within months of the actual resurrection and when Paul gives that three-line formula of um, Christ died in accordance with the scriptures he was raised um, he was buried and he he was raised Um, that let me just find it in that chapter he says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures in verse three Um, so this in accordance with the scriptures, Paul doesn't didn't have the Old Testament, you know, he was still writing it. So when he refers to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. Um, he didn't have the so New Testament, did he? Yeah, you said he didn't have the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament. Oh, sorry. He had the Old, didn't have the New. Yeah. So when he says scriptures, he means old. Yeah. Um, and it, it, again, Peter in Acts 3.18 says that um, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So there's this idea that the Messiah is going to be the fulfillment of this Old Testament expectation of a coming one with a capital O um, to be a fulfillment of all these things, Um, which when you look into probability wise is just um, absolutely mind boggling. Um, Before you get started on um, that thought train, Josh, just so are we, do you think we're trying to you know, I mean, it's obviously very important and very central to Christian theology. But do you think we're trying to put too much store by something that's become like a legend? Um, and yet we've kind of tried to make it theological. Is there is there what I, I suppose what I'm asking really is, is there any kind of evidence that would stand up? by today's kind of scrutiny that we can say well this is the evidence we have for the virgin birth i mean i don't suppose anyone did a a test on mary prior to her consent because she wasn't famous at that point was she was she was nobody really but is there any any credible evidence yeah well going um well i'll have a look at the so there's this idea that there are it's a later myth, which we'll, we'll look at in a second. But if we, if I kind of build a cumulative case, it's probably yeah. the easiest way to um, to to get through it. So, um, 
we've got to start, I think, by looking at how we can trust the Gospels, because it's in, in Matthew's and in Luke's Gospel that we get are given the account of um, the virgin birth. Um, so just a few few points that we can um, trust the Gospels. And this is kind of using what historians use to ascertain the historicity of, of you know, ancient things, because obviously we haven't got like video evidence of something 2000 years ago. So we I think we need to lay our kind of unfair expectations at the door and go, look, what are we talking about here? This is a time in ancient Palestine over 2000 years ago. You know, we can't demand video proof of something. Um, but the evidence that we can demand of something, we, there is plenty of. So just looking at the Gospels briefly. So the first point is that they contain eyewitness accounts. Now, this, what as a form of evidence, is not only very compelling for ancient things, but even today, you know, yeah. millions of criminals are convicted um, on eyewitness testimony. Um, <clears throat> and what's even better is when there's multiple eyewitnesses that are saying the same thing. Um, which we have with the four gospels and much of um, you know the epistles, Paul's letters, um, and etc. They all kind of harmonise with each other. Um, the second point is that the gospels are written very close to the events that they record, and even further than that, they use um, ancient sources. So um, scholars give them different names. So Mark's got an M source and a Q source. So there's <clears throat> which are just kind of arbitrary names that are referring to a kind of a document or a source of information that the gospel writers used in writing their gospel accounts. So if we say that um, Mark's gospel was dated to um, AD 50, say, um, <clears throat> Mark uses, you can tell by the difference in how it's written, um, that he's used um, data from an earlier source in compiling his document so like with with luke's gospel he says you know at the start that like, i've compiled you know i've spoken to loads of people got different records to compile a list of what's happened um <clears throat> so by definition these sources are earlier than the gospels themselves so if we have a gospel day of ad 50 that means that the information being used is by definition earlier than ad 50 and the fact that it was written Back in the olden times, you wouldn't just write something down. It was a there was a process of things being written. So it pushes the date very close to the event. So you've got the cross here. This pushes yeah. it closer. Um, <clears throat> do you think just just as a quick aside, do you think people give an unfair put unfair demands on the evidence of the Bible? Um, because, for example, nobody starts out reading um, a secular historian with the assumption that what they're saying is a pack of lies do they you know like Josephus, we take him as being a a kind of separate voice no one starts with this huge dose of skepticism thinking yeah everything he wrote is rubbish do they but yeah they seem definitely. to kind of put that onto the bible a bit do you think mm, yeah it's funny because historians love tacitus um oh, right. they give they, they call him the ancient world's most distinguished historian, which is very praise indeed, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you can tell from the title they give him, they accept his writings as historically accurate. Um, but there are 20 copies of his writings. And the earliest copy is a thousand years after the original. In 
Whereas the old, the New Testament is over 5,000 copies of the original text. Wow. And the earliest is within 50 years of the originals. Incredible. So if we accept the history, historicity of Tacitus, which everyone does, then we are being very unfair to the Bible if we disregard that. And if, if we're going to go down that road, then if you were to be logically consistent, then you wouldn't be left with much at all that you could believe because it's just so, so, so well documented. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's certainly one rule for one and one for another. Um, <clears throat> so that's another good... Yeah. That's another good argument in favour of the, the reliability of the Gospels. Mm. Um, we've also got things like um, how they correlate with what we know about history and culture, etc. So like places, names is an, is a, an interesting one. Um, people have done studies on like what names were popular in certain eras and the New Testament is like bang on with the, you know, the names of people are what you would expect at yeah. that time. They would um, have been trending on what's, yeah. what babyname.com or something. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And then as you said, you mentioned Josephus, we've got people like him and Tacitus and Pliny who were very anti-Jesus, but, did corroborate a lot of what he said just by, you know, being so negative about him. They confirmed a lot of what the gospels say in their hatred of it. Um, so, yeah, so that's how we can show that the gospels are historically reliable. And then if we, I mentioned the historical texts, if we do that, um, <clears throat> a guy called C.B. McCulloch, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but he talked about this, these criteria of historicity that, um, are used and one of them is multiple attestation so it's this idea that the more something is mentioned independently the greater its probability of historicity and um as i've said with the gospels we've got multiple um, eyewitness accounts with regards to the virgin birth specifically we've got you know matthews and luke's gospel so that's two we've got two independent source materials so that's another two um <clears throat> we you know we can you can tell that it's different sources because Matthew, um, his perspective of the virgin birth is by um, um, Joseph. He seems to be from the perspective of Joseph. You know, he hears what the angel writes, what the angel said to Joseph, whereas Luke talks more about Mary's experience. Um, So the assumption is that there are two independent eyewitness sources. Yeah. So that... And Luke and then, was a doctor, of course. Yes. Well, they, um, I think it was Anthony Flew, the most notorious atheist who died a theist, um, thankfully. Hopefully he died a Christian. Um, <clears throat> but he, he said that Luke was a first-rate historian. And wow. funnily enough, that Paul was a first-rate philosopher as well. He read, as an atheist, read Romans and thought, this guy is phenomenally clever, yeah. <laughs> which is really cool. And the same with Luke. Um, yeah, um, and so the, carrying on with the, that criteria, we, even the Quran, um, Surah 19, verses 17 to 21, actually talks about the virgin birth, um, if that means anything to anyone. Um, I think and then, of course, the Old Testament attestations, we've got, you know, the Isaiah 7 um, prophecy. And then another kind of cool, more, maybe more interesting criterion is the one of embarrassment. So it's this idea that if you're going to make up a story, 
you would probably leave out um, embarrassing features of the story. Like um, when you read in Matthew's gospel that um, the guy ran away, he got his, they grabbed his cloak and he ran off naked. You know, you kind of think, would you, if, because most scholars think that it was that Matthew who wrote the gospels. You think, oh, why would you put that in? Um, unless it was true. Obviously, most famously, the women being the first to find the empty tomb, the testimony of women was not um, seen as anything back in the ancient world. So for, you know, the first people who discovered Jesus's tomb empty to be women, it's most probable that it's true, because if they were to make it up, they would definitely say it was men. Um, and, and with regards to the virgin birth, um, you know, illegitimate birth, virgin birth, absolutely scandalous to Jewish ears, you know, out of wedlock, um, big hoo-ha. Um, and there were stories circulating that Jesus was illegitimate, not a descendant of David, but nevertheless, they, you know, they kept, <clears throat> the gospel writers kept, um, kept all of that stuff in, which... So they toughed it out, really, regardless of any, like, <laughs> embarrassment or... Yeah, you think if you're... If you're trying to build a religion out of, yeah. you know, you're going to make it a lot more believable than, oh, you know, a young virgin girl, you know, like, yeah. it just, it doesn't, other than what we've spoken about, it doesn't bring anything yeah. to the table. It doesn't add any kind of form of believability. No, so no. it's interesting because actually the only person who could definitely say she was a virgin was Mary herself. Yeah. And you would think, well, of all the people who would kind of want to preserve their honor and stuff and have some elaborate story cover story for their ill-timed pregnancy, it would be mm. the, the young woman concerned. So, but interestingly, she's believed and that story, mm. you know, and, and the angel says to Joseph, doesn't he says, don't hesitate to take this woman to be your wife. Mm. Have you thought a bit about why it says, doesn't it, that Joseph didn't know her until after the child was born? Because it's sort of like saying that some, like kind of Joseph respected this state of pregnancy that Mary was in and because the angel said to him what's conceived in her or said to Mary didn't didn't he what's conceived in you is from the Holy Spirit and so it's like mm. do you think Joseph was like really respectful of this thing that was going on with Mary and didn't Definitely. yeah I, I think there's you certainly get that don't you you do feel for him in, yeah as you read, and you know, as we were saying about the Jewish culture, it was scandalous. Joseph was a Jew, Mary was a Jew. You know, he his first reaction was to kind of settle things quietly, wasn't it? And then until the angel yes. appeared. But um Do it yeah, it's <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, you do um you, your heart certainly goes out to him. But then I think I think that's why. God obviously knew that he needed an angel to <laughs> appear in front of him to actually, because otherwise I think you'd be very sceptical, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the, his actions sort of also add weight to 
the believability because it would have to be sorry fairly earth shattering for you to stay with that person and believe them and see it through you know joseph having the respect to kind of stick with her i think you know no matter how much you love someone if if that if they say that you're going to be very skeptical aren't you whilst you're engaged you know it wasn't like they were they you know just she'd had a previous relationship or something and he found out about it it was actually happened during their engagement, didn't it? So mm. it's pretty, yeah. yeah, it's a massive deal. So that in itself, you would say, is is more evidence, really. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Wow. You're doing well, Josh. This is really good. <laughs> <laughs> Some might say, oh, you know, the virgin birth thing, it's a bit of an old mythology type of idea that the Christians sort of tagged on into their thing to make it a bit more... Mm mystical or adventurous or something what <laughs> yeah what, yeah what's it's, that about? <laughs> it's a common objection i think we've already looked at how close the gospels were written to the events and um there have been studies into how long legends take to form so kind of um unfactual additions to stories and they reckon it's at least two full generations for a legend to form and solidify and become part of a canon of a particular story. Interesting. Um, really interesting. Because, yeah. um, you know, the process of telling someone and then them not being near someone who actually saw it. But, it, but with, with the gospel writers, they were all writing and had finished writing in their own lifetimes and in the lifetimes of people who had seen the things as well. You know, they're would have been every motivation for someone to go, oh, no, I was there, that didn't happen, you know, but there is nothing that no one ever recanted, no one changed their statement. Um, I, I mean, it, that, that's fascinating just in itself. I mean, like, as well, when you read the stories, you read, like, and, you know, anyone who's been to um, Israel will say the distances are quite small, aren't they? And it's all very, very densely. The stories yeah. all happen within quite a small piece of um, geography. Um, yeah. And, and so it's like a lot of the people mentioned were alive at the time they're mentioned in the story, yeah. which is, they could have yeah. said, what a load of rubbish, you know? And, yeah. And yeah. Each well, of those. Each I think. Go on, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, each of the 12, apart from John, was it, were martyred? Oh, and yeah, Judas. brutally martyred as well. Because they believed the whole Crucified story. Crucified upside down. Yeah. And they wouldn't go back on any detail of it, would they? Mm. Yeah. It's funny, The in First Corinthians 15 again, um, <clears throat> Paul says, when he's talking about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, he then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. They some have fallen asleep. Now, scholars like James Dunn, who is like the boy and other, you know, like most scholars are saying like, Paul doing this is literally saying, look, if you don't believe me, there are 500 people. Most of them are alive. Go and tell them for yourselves. So he's kind of putting his money where his mouth is and going, all right, fine. If you don't believe that I saw Jesus raised from the dead, there are 500 people. And that's not even going into the nonsense of mass hallucinations, which doesn't work. And, you know, the idea that everyone 
just believe something that wasn't true. There are 500 people that Paul saying, look, I know these people and you, I can trust them, which Very is, um, yeah. Did you, um, just, go on, go on. No, no, I was, I was going to talk briefly about the, the mythology thing. That, oh, yeah. Because one argument people give is, oh, um, there's this story about this person who was born of a virgin, you know, and it's just the Christians trying to keep up with um, the Roman, competing Roman myths. Um, I was hearing about one today. Um, apparently Buddha was allegedly born of a virgin, but um, this... His, the first records of Buddha's life didn't appear until after 200 years, you know, 200 years after he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that, that didn't even say anything about his birth. That didn't even come until like hundreds of years after that. But um, <clears throat> and, um, a scholar called um, Craig Bloomberg has done an interesting study of this. And um, he's talking about these supposed parallels to the virgin birth story are actually just stories of human sexual relations with the belief that one party was a god or goddess incognito. Um, and one example is Alexander the Great, which is quite a funny one. So there's the legend claimed that um, there was an Egyptian king called Nectanebo, or Nectanebo, I don't know how you pronounce it, um, who visited the Macedonian queen Olympias, um, who was Alexander the Great's mother, and prophesied that she would be visited and conceive a child by the Egyptian god Ammon. Um, however, what actually happened was that Neptunevo disguised himself as Ammon, so put a costume on, <laughs> and impregnated Olympias. Um, but even if this prophecy was true, it's it's nowhere near the say the you know the uniqueness claim of Jesus's immaculate conception. You know, this is a god sleeping with a human. This isn't the immaculate conception of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, once you actually look. And this was written hundreds of years after Alexander's death. Um, the, was the first right, the deify him anyway. Yeah. Um, and as we've already looked at, you know, the Gospels were written far too early for legendary assertions, you know, insertions to be made. Um, so the idea that the virgin birth is, you know, just one of many stories is, is nonsense. There's nothing like it at all. Fantastic. So, Josh, just just um, you were going to talk a little bit about probabilities, and I intercepted you to get you on a different track. Just talk a little bit about the probabilities, just before we finish, about how the likelihood of Jesus' birth and everything fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Yeah, cool. So, this is a really good one for, in terms of proving that Jesus is God um, and not just a normal person. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I like some of Jesus' teaching. Oh, I like the, this. But, you know, this this kind of is, I think, irrefutable evidence of Jesus' divinity. So um, a couple of examples of the prophecies that he fulfilled in his life. So one of them is um, in Micah 5.2, which was written 700 years before Jesus, talks about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, which um, was fulfilled in, you know, we read in Matthew 2, 1, about... Um, <clears throat> Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Another one is Zechariah 11, um, 12 to 13. So this was over 500 years before Jesus was born. And it talks about um, the Messiah being portrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that that money would be used to buy a potter's field, which we know happened with Judas um, in Matthew 26. And Acts 1 talks about um, the 30 pieces of silver that the high priest gave Judas in return for 
um, betraying Jesus. And then 2 Samuel 7, um, a, an amazing prophecy that talks about um, God establishing David's throne forever, um, which we read throughout the Gospels of <coughs> Jesus's, you know, identity as a son of David kind of thing. Um, so these, these are three of um, a conservative estimate of over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled during his life, death and resurrection. Um, and the so mathematicians who are much cleverer than me sat down and thought, right, why don't we figure out the probability of anyone, you know, these things just happening by chance because people say, oh, you know, that could have happened. Like lots of people are born, yada, yada. So they kind of sat down and worked out like with regards to the being born in Bethlehem, they said, okay, how many people have been born in Bethlehem from the date that was written until now, divided by the years, et cetera. Um, and got like one in 300,000 and did that a com- compounding um, thing. And it's, you may have heard it there, and it says for eight of the prophecies to have been fulfilled by chance is the same as covering an area the size of Texas, two feet deep in pound coins with an X on one of them. You blindfold someone, tell them to pick one up. And the first one they pick up is the one with the X on it, which is amazing, isn't it? Um, so that's eight then, prophecies. If eight were yeah, true, eight, eight of three hundred. Yeah, and then but a really cool one is they worked out forty-eight. I don't know when they'll if they'll do all three hundred because I think that would just be too bonkers. But so for forty-eight now, bear with me because so they say that you got to start with an electron. Now electron is it was the smallest piece of matter known to man. Um, it's the thing that circles the um, nucleus of an atom. So not even the atom, the nuclear, you know, the thing that circulates the nucleus. And so you get them. And I, they said that if you were to count one inch thick line of them, one by one, it would take 19 million years. <laughs> and then, so you get these electrons and then you get a ball the size of the known universe, like not just our universe, every, like everything that we know is out there. Fill that ball with electrons, mark one of them with an X. This is the probability of 48 of the prophecies coming true. <laughs> you get that same guy who's been over to Texas, but stick a blindfold on him. Say, so go on, pick an electron. The first one he picks up is the one with the X on it. That's the probability of those things happening by chance. And I don't particularly fancy these odds. Um, I'm, um, it was um, William Ockham, I think you said, um, the Ockham's razor, that thing of the most obvious conclusion is probably the correct one. I think to apply Ockham's razor here, by far the most logical conclusion is that Jesus is God. Wow. Um, he is who he says he is, which, of course, has tremendous implications for us because it means that the gospel, the incredible gospel that Jesus came because he loves us so much to die on the cross, to take the punishment for our sin so that we can be made right with God and enjoy eternal life with him. It means that that's true, which is just incredible. And, you know, it's Jesus isn't just a kind of charismatic teacher. He's not just a wise sage you know he is god john 1 1 says that you know was the word um from beginning you know the eternal word god himself coming to earth that little baby in the manger 
on, well, they reckon it was in March, but let's say for argument on Christmas Day. <laughs> Whenever that was, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, kind of the, the virgin birth, just in that context, I think it's just absolutely incredibly beautiful. Wow. You know, this, this God who can kind of orchestrate these things, you know, the probabilities, um, all these things to coincide and to, to, to work out in exactly the right way. All those things kind of culminate in this tiny, vulnerable little baby who grew up and, you know, preached the kingdom, who healed people, he did all these incredible things and then died at the hands of the very people he created, which I just think is absolutely tragic to think of. Incredible. You know, that little baby died and died for me and for anyone watching or listening at home died for us so that we could be given a gift that we absolutely do not deserve um so i yeah yeah so i would just encourage anyone who's watching or listening and they haven't allowed jesus to be lord of their life to just <laughs> invite him in you know he is he is there he loves us so much and um just accept that there are things that you've done wrong except that you are in need desperate need of a dramatic change in your life and he'll rescue from rescue from it he rescued me he rescued you dad and um yeah it's just incredible isn't it it's such a beautiful beautiful thing and that's what i think is so wonderful about christmas is that just that reminder of <clears throat> what Jesus did for us. And um, he certainly has changed my life and he will certainly change yours, whoever is listening at home who doesn't already know Fantastic. him. <laughs> Josh, you have done an amazing job. That was really beautiful, especially the bit at the end where you just um, summarise it. And just to make it simple, the, the invitation is there and it's there for now. And really, Josh is absolutely right. Don't put it off. If you are thinking mm. about considering seriously, do it now. Open your mm. heart to him and say, come on then, Jesus, if you're there, I want you to come into my life and change it in the way that you promised, in the way that really is good news to me. And let your mm. life and your death on the cross and your resurrection count for me and cover all of my sin, all the stuff I owe God. I trust you're going to pay it off. Mm. and accept me as your child today amen amen i think just an important thing to remember is we don't if you're struggling at home to comprehend this idea of the virgin birth like that's not a prerequisite to being saved there are god knows the human heart he knows that we struggle with things so don't feel like oh i just can't get my head around this like it's yeah, God knows us. He meets us where we're at. We don't have to have all our ducks in order to, you know, to be saved, you know. So, but, and also ask him, say, God, I'm struggling. Help reveal this to me. How does this work? You know, speak to me. He still speaks today. And yeah, he hears us on me call and he, he wants to, yeah, he wants to have a relationship with us. So beautiful. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. You've done an amazing job. And thanks for having me. Bless you with the rest of your studies. And 
Um, yeah, hope to catch up soon over Christmas. So yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening, everyone. And don't forget, back up, pray the prayer, receive Jesus today, honestly. Best thing you'll ever do. And buy dad's book, The Christing, available now. <laughs> Shameless plug there. Ideal Christmas present. <laughs> A stocking filler, yeah, for people with rectangular legs. <laughs> Take care. See you soon, Josh. See you later. I am super excited to be able to recommend to you my book, The Christing. It's a whole adventure of digging deep into the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, exploring stories that may be familiar to us, but just seeing how the power and the beautiful, rich treasure of the Holy Spirit is there on every single page. And my desire as I share my own stories is that we would get caught up in that adventure together of a life pursuing the supernatural God where anything becomes possible when we're full of his Holy Spirit. And so my prayer for you as you read this book is that you'll get excited to embark on your own voyage of discovery with him, but more than anything else that you would fall more in love with Jesus. So please, if you have not got a copy, do buy one. You can get it online on all the major um, online bookstores, including Amazon, Eden and others. You can buy it from Christian bookshops. Uh, or you can message me and get your own signed copy. There you go. But do like it and review it because that really, really does help. Thank you so much. <laughs>